Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. Hey, this is Mac. Checking game cameras is one of the many pleasures I get from gamekeeping. OnX helps keep track of my camera locations to be sure I'm getting the information that I need to make the best decisions for the wildlife. Try it out for yourself and see. Use coupon code MOSSYOAK to save 20% on your OnX subscriptions. Know where you stand. Hi, I'm Jeff Foxworthy and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. Oh, wow. I'm digging that. Y'all ready for this? (laughs) We're live in three, two, one. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I didn't know that was coming. Did you know? No, that? the 1990s called and wants the rave music back. Yeah, okay. I don't. I'm not familiar with that one there. But <laughs> Mike, thank you for trying that or doing that or whatever you pulled off there. And you know, this is look, I, guys. I, I'm hoping we can pull this off as a successful podcast. So. Half of our company seems like is out with COVID right now. I, I, I'm almost venturing to say it's more than half. It's it's really crazy. We managed to keep it out of this building for, uh, uh, and and we have it's people's spouses that uh, that are that are coming down with it. So it's just kind of crazy. We've got a really interesting show. We've got Dr. Brian Davis over here. Yeah, well, hit those horns for Dr. Davis. So he is from Mississippi State University, and he is a uh, I'm a just kind of abbreviate this, but he's a waterfowl expert, and he's. Uh, we've got a lot of questions to ask him, and we're going to kind of focus around banding, the history of banding, what they've learned, what it teaches us, and uh, so we'll we'll get into that a little bit later on, Dudley. But uh, Lanny's not here, but we're hoping we will be able to call him. Yeah, hopefully we can get him. If he'll answer, yeah, we've been trying him already. Yeah, yeah. So uh, look, Doc, I, I want to ask you. There's a young man over here. Uh, Jack Collett, who is our intern, he's from Montgomery, my hometown, and his father and I are friends, and his father, they're worried about whether he's going to school or not. I wanted to ask, do you recognize him? Have you ever seen him in the halls? No, he skips yeah. every day. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is playing into my, I'm worried <laughs> Never seen that he, he's here working all the time. I don't, know. <laughs> I, I don't think he's going to school. Oh, yeah. Man. Okay. All right. Well, Mac, have you got a commercial for us today? I, I do. I wanted to talk about uh, apex ammunition. I mean, with duck season being in full swing and turkey season on the horizon, I mean, now is the time to really probably load up on your spring turkey shells because they fly off the shells pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. And during this COVID time, if every all ammunition has been getting hard, harder and harder to get. I've shot some of this stuff at waterfowl, some of the apex. It's unbelievable. Those guys do a great job. 
And the uh, turkey stuff, we all know how well it Yeah, works. I mean, we've all seen results from that. It's ridiculous. How many did you miss with it last year? Uh, I missed two turkeys yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, okay. But it went off when you pulled the it trigger. It went though. off, and, and if I was aiming right, he would have folded. Look, I'll, I'll, we're, we're just joking around. It's great stuff. It I, is I, stuff. I have When I've got it in my gun, I feel very confident. I yeah. mean, it's another level of confidence. Mac and I went down there the other day and visited with them, and uh, – they're just so down to earth and fun to hang out with, and you, know, you just want to do business with people like that. Mac, what's their website? Their website is apexmunition.com. Okay, yeah, y'all go check that out. So, well, look, let's get right to it, Mac. While while I'm getting started with, uh, we're just going to call him Doc over here. We. Uh, would you try to call Lanny one more time, see if we can grab him? I can do it. And, uh, Doc, we've, we've got Bronson Strickland's been in here and Dr. Damaris, and uh, you guys just have a reputation over there, the wildlife department. It's just it's got a fantastic reputation. Now, let's not throw Jack Collett in there, but uh, aside from that. Yeah. No, hey, it's all because of them. They're great. No, we, we do have a great department. It is yeah, but everybody gets along. You know, we always hear the old adage, family, but it really is. And um, nobody really competes. But if you look at everybody's track record, it's like, good Lord, man. You know, people are – I mean, I don't know what Bronson and Steve do half the time, and they probably don't know what we do, but at the end of the year, it's like, man, everybody's just doing a lot of stuff. It's, you know? And, yeah. So nice having you guys so close to West Point. <clears throat> oh, yeah. 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 Well, it's real impressive. I've, I've said – uh oh, uh -oh. Yeah. We, is that Lanny, or is that your wife, or who is that? Lanny, is that you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Well, thank goodness Look you who finally the cat called in. in. Uh, yeah. So, Lanny, we uh, we're sitting here. We've got Doctor Brian Davis here with us, and we're going to talk waterfowl, and we're going to talk a little duck banding. And uh, just glad to have you on because I know it's something that you've. Uh, I mean, I've I've seen you get in fist fights over a duck band time to time. You know, I love I love a duck. You know, I don't know about duck bands, but you know, obviously waterfowl holds a, a special place in our hearts. You know, being from Mississippi and everything else, and it's one of those things we've we've chased a lot. That's for sure. Uh, and it's a changing you know in, environment out there. It's one of the things that we we work on as gamekeepers. It's honestly the hardest for us to understand because it's it's uh, we tend to focus on it at a micro level but it's really a, a macro kind of thing so uh we're i'm super excited that research is going on uh and super proud that we can you know just be a part of it um so you know i don't know about duck bands but i love ducks that's for sure yeah and so I, you know go ahead well, I was gonna say we we couldn't get Lanny for the longest, and now we can't get him to hush up. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, you, know? <laughs> you said duck. <laughs> you can't have a cake yeah. too, you know. So, so look, yeah, Doctor Davis, tell us. I'm gonna call you Doc. It's, That's fine. So, uh, what is it that makes us all so passionate about these birds? It's just, it's really is. When you meet people that are duck hunters, they are cr passionate, crazy about it. That is a really good question. I've got a, a good friend in Shreveport, Louisiana. His name is Skipper Dixon. And he and his brother, their family, have been a friend of the Ducks for decades. Uh, they've been on the Watt board, things like that. And it's funny that you ask that because he's he's one of these guys. I always tell him, I'm like, dang, Skipper, you're just like AAA, man. You're either on fire and going or you're sleeping. And he's hardly ever sleeping. And we were sitting around the their uh, living room there a couple of years ago after a hunt in Loggy Bayou. He's like, Brian, 
He goes, what is it about duck? What is it about us, man? We're, we're crazy. He goes, I know people love deer and they love turkeys, but there's something different about duck hunters. I said, I know. I said, and I'm like, yeah, of course, we're drinking some red wine and that helps. And I'm like, good God, man. I think about that all the time and I've yet to reconcile why that really is. And um, I just, I think it's true. It almost sounds like we're being a little arrogant, like, hey, we're more passionate about what we do than you are. And it's not meant to be that way. Um, but I agree. And and some people probably get that, you know, they say, well, where's your data? Where are your facts? Like, well, I don't really have any facts, I guess. It's just sort of observation and and living it, you know, and how we get to that place, I don't know, but I, I completely agree. Um, not to say that there aren't rabid deer and turkey hunters. We know there are, but there's just something about, and maybe it's the number of species and the different kinds of them and the different places they live. Um, that makes a whole lot of sense. You know, it's just this really yeah. large uh, variability in the size of the birds, the sights, the sounds. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's that. well, what led you to choose waterfowl as, as something that you wanted to focus on. I started. My family took me duck hunting at about age nine at Fountain Grove and Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge in North Missouri. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and as a kid, y'all. A lot of you know the story of the Canada geese, how now a Canada goose doesn't really come down here unless there's two feet of snow and it's zero for 14 days in, in the Dakotas. But historically, when I was growing up a kid uh, in the mid-1970s, I hate to reveal my age, but um, in the mid-70s, there were about 200,000 what we call the eastern prairie population of Canada geese that would come to North Missouri. And when you're eight, nine, ten years old, sitting in a steel pit and seeing these huge 10, 12-pound birds flying around, you know, times 200 or so thousand, like, holy smokes, you know. So um, that really caught my attention early on. And and then um, probably the thing that really sealed the deal is back then they would have check stations. You know, you get one or two birds you mm-hmm. can harvest based on, on the quotas and that. And I went to the check station, and lo and behold, there's a um, – Graduate student from the University of Matrac- uh, Missouri, and she was attractive and a goose biologist. I'm like, wow, man, this is a cool field. <laughs> so, uh, but it was really the goose hunting, I think, you know, that really, I mean, just all inspiring birds, you know. And, and now we hardly see Canada geese other than the, the locals. The locals. Yeah. yeah, I've never done I've never done the dry land goose thing. I'd, I'd love to yeah. try that sometime. Well, you need to go spec hunting it's because it's <clears throat> spec hunting is amazing. And they, yeah. they say they're the best to eat, right? They're wonderful. They're like a big green wing teal. They eat seeds and yeah, they're really good. So we yeah. did a, years ago, mm-hmm. we did a, Lanny, you may remember this, but years ago we did a television show with uh, Tim Grounds yep. and it was in, uh, I want to say it was Crab, the Crab Apple Refuge. Crab Orchard. In, Crab Orchard Refuge, yep. Southern Illinois. And it was all about Canada. And and we just happened to get there on a day when they had a lot of migrants. Yep. And I mean, he kept telling me that you, you that you're getting a real treat. It, it was incredible. And he's an incredible caller. I I can't call Canada geese anymore. I was better at it probably 30 years ago than I am now because I just haven't hunted it. But he is an unbelievable caller. Yeah, and world if champion. Get, if you can get to where they want to be and you have somebody like that, it can be lights out. It was, it was incredible. So yeah. th- so you've made your way to Mississippi State, and, and right now you're teaching young minds there at, at, at college about – you're creating young waterfowl, waterfowl biologists. Correct. 
And that's got to be super rewarding for somebody that enjoys the sport as much as you obviously do. Yeah, it is. I mean, I <clears throat> I worked for DU, Ducks Unlimited, for eight years. I worked for California Waterfowl Association in California for six. That was before before graduate school. I worked for CWA. And, um, and before that, I worked for Missouri Department of Conservation on waterfowl management areas. Then I went to California. Then I came to start full for grad school, did my PhD, master's and PhD with Dr. Kaminsky. And then I went to uh, DU for eight years. And then I came back here in 2009. So that's one of the things that really motivates me as a professor is I can honestly tell the students that I've worked for the, the feds, the state, and in two NGOs. And so there's, you know, sometimes people view professors, oh, they're sitting in their ivory tower and all that. And one of the things I pride myself on, though, is um, I always try to get to the kids in the field for field trips. And, you know, I, I can really relate to the real world in terms of summer jobs and career paths based on NGO, state or feds, things like that. So it's really rewarding. And, and, and the 20 somethings keep you young, you know, so sure. <laughs> well, it's all good. <laughs> I'll say this. You can go to Mississippi State's website or you can just Google Brian Davis, MS State, Um there's a list of publications a mile long with his name on it with all, you know, tons of really good information you can learn from. So I appreciate hopefully that. we'll get some of it out of you today. <laughs> so look, uh, Lanny, you go. we're, we're going to ask questions. I know Lanny's got some <laughs> questions. Dudley's got some. Max probably got some. I want to start off with just one question, and this isn't about banding, but I would like to get your opinion on it. Seems like we're not getting ducks down here like we used to. And do you have a thought or a, 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 a hypothesis of what might be going on, or is it just our imagination as hunters? So how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, you bring some beer in here with no Actually, yeah, it's, it's, we're a, some. it's an excellent question, and there are a lot of real things that are occurring. And uh, now that you brought that up, I'm one of maybe a dozen or 15 people. A few years ago, we decided, look, um, things are changing. Like we always say, everything, the climate has always changed. Um Farming has always changed. Everything has always changed, but it seems like in more recent years, um, it's just really become noticeable, uh, probably because of social media. You hear the opinions a lot more than you would have 10, 20 years ago. But yes, um, a lot of things. So there are, as we know, changes in the climate. And we've learned um, a lot about duck migration in terms of, gosh, we could... I don't even know where to start this, but for example, mallards, um, we know that just one cold front, like tonight is going to get cold again. That's probably going to move a handful of birds. You know, I say a handful, maybe maybe a couple hundred thousand. Who knows how many are going to move tonight, but tomorrow it's going to be cold. It was really cold a week or so ago. The big difference nowadays between decades past is that uh, it gets cold briefly and then it warms up, you know? And to really move mallards, there's two things we really need. We need snow on the ground in the north, and not just a dusting, but a few inches of snow and sort of prolonged. And when it gets cold, we really need freezing or below temperatures for at least a week straight. That's when you really start to move mallards, you know. So there's a whole conversation just about weather and climate. That's just one part of it. Um and, and, and to sort of back up this this team of us, um, we've begun to investigate. 
I guess our mission is what is going on out there? What are the things that we can identify? What are the things we think may be happening? And then of all of that, what can we do about it? And of the things we can identify, can or can we not do anything about it? When I say things like what can we identify, we know now that, for example, um, corn production on the American farm, not the duck clubs, on the American farm in the last 30 years has increased by something like 12 million, uh, millions of acres in the north because corn keeps – and as you guys, and we know that have hunted ducks in northern environments – Birds are no stranger to feeding in dry fields, agricultural fields in Canada and the Dakotas and things like that. That's just another one example. The other thing that's really hard to define but we think is probably really um, affecting duck behavior, there's a difference between populations and then behavior. And and I'm convinced disturbance, and I'm talking about us. Um, I think nowadays, and this isn't a – you know, denigrate or cut down any any one person or entity because we all love to hunt. But I, I personally think we're we've made ducks a lot more nocturnal. Mm. Um, you know, nowadays with computers and you know all the stuff we're doing. Hey, where are the ducks? You know, and and I laugh at people. I'm like, why do y'all shoot a limit of mallards? And then then you got it on Facebook. You know, the next day there's ten people in your hole because they know where you. So the the speed of communication. You know, hey, the ducks are here, the ducks are there. And so are those changes influencing duck populations? No. But are they influencing behavior? I think yes. I think birds are a lot more nocturnal. We see it in Missouri on some of the best managed wetlands in the United States are on Missouri Department of Conservation wildlife areas. And yet, I mean, they shoot a lot of ducks. But, boy, in years when they have really outstanding food and water conditions – those birds are coming out at 445. Why risk get shot, mm-hmm. you know, and you come out in the evening? And So those are the things that are harder to quantify. That's the age-old question. How much sanctuary? I get that from, from landowners all the time. Should I just hunt till 9? Should I only hunt two days a week? You know, and usually my answers are it depends. You know, it depends on how many people are hunting, how big is your property. There's a lot of what-ifs, you know. <laughs> but, but that's a great question, and we think there's a lot of re- – and then the last thing I'll say, because we could go on forever, but there's a recent publication in the Journal of Wildlife Management, and Dr. Rick Kaminsky was a co-author, but they looked at um, 30 or 50 years long, decades long Christmas bird count data. And every year, um, birds, not just ducks, but birds in general, are counted by the public. Um, and there's there's this long treasure trove of Christmas bird count data, and they analyzed that, and they looked at some like 15 duck species, diving ducks and dabbling ducks. And for every one of them, the, the question was, is there more of a northward wintering area and or delayed migration? And when you look at a curve on a map or a line, usually this indicates something is increasing. When it does this, it means it's decreasing. And for 12 of the 16 species, weather explained like 50% of those birds, there's a little bit, um, there's a delayed migration by anywhere from one to two weeks and or birds are hanging further north. So climate you know, changes in agriculture and then, you know, there's, we could go on with this, but I'll stop there. I don't know if that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but there's a lot of variables there. Um, yeah, we, we, we're all of the opinion that, I mean, and this is kind of a delicate subject, but just the, 
the the amount of pressure that's on the birds oh, yeah. right now. It's just yeah. a it, there needs to be a way to figure out how to manage that better. I had an eight. Well, I completely agree about the the the, the ducks feeding at night. I mean, it's a phenomenon we've been noticing over the last decade. I actually started harvesting ducks later in the day, and and we would even go hunting at you know two o'clock in the afternoon, and they started getting later and later and later. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, Lanny, have you let's 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 start down the road on banding. So, Lanny, have you got a question there you want to kick us off with? Yeah, my you know mine's about ducks, not about banding. I understand the banding is the research that we need to track these things. You know, back on towards the migration conversation. You know, in my mind, you know, growing up, you know, it got cold up north and the ducks pushed south and it got cold in the south and the, and the ducks pushed further south. But are these, these ducks actually going south and north? So they'll come down south and as it warms back up, they go back north. Um, is that an instinct that they have or, or once they come to the south and they find a food source, do they stay, stay there until it's depleted and then move again? I guess what I'm saying is their return flight, uh, is weather related as push them down. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say it's a combination of all those things. And the other thing we think about in terms of migration, birds don't necessarily just go north-south, like from top to bottom. They'll also move longitudinally as well. Um, But I think it's both strategies. For one, one of the things that we know about ducks is typically the older, heavier, older birds. Um, Usually their body mass is greater and, and and typically, it's like a large Canada goose, large goose versus a small goose. They can physiologically withstand colder temperatures. And so they, they're they a cohort of birds that can remain further north. And so in some, uh, in some years, um, some of those birds don't even come down. And if, you know, if it gets really rough, you'll get a, a greater proportion of the birds come south. But your other – so, yes – so not all birds are going to migrate. For example, we know there's actually a couple of really cool publications. There's a population of about 60,000 mallards that lives on the Missouri River in North Dakota, and they sustain on rainbow smelt in the wintertime. And uh. they, they probably supplement their feeding in, in corn fields and ag fields up there in, in the Dakotas. Um, but it's it's really Bizarre. Now, whether they eat fish, they, the, rainbow the, smell. The, yeah. the, and that's the rainbow trout, the small fingerlings. Yeah. Egg. Yeah. Yeah. Little, little bitty smell. I don't, I'm not a fisheries. So the river's thing. moving and it keeps, keeps the ice from, it keeps it open. It, it can, unless it gets really bitter, bitter cold. But, and what's interesting about those birds is that um, some of my colleagues that work up there and study them and hunt them and all that, they're like, you want to know something even more bizarre? They're like, when it's really, really cold, they will search out the sandbars that are a little darker color because you get more radiation off that darker sand or gravel onto their bodies. And they're like, when the weather's a little milder, they'll just, they'll go wherever, but they'll even seek out like darker shaded areas along the river because there's more solar radiation. That's (laughs) an interesting tidbit you don't don't normally hear about or discuss. But then to answer the other about it. To answer the other part of your question, I totally believe in, you know, just like the sustained cold and the north winds I was talking about, I think nowadays the reverse is true. We get, you know, a week of 60-degree temperatures and south winds. These birds are like, man, screw this. You know, we're getting shot at. I'm, you know, if you had a, if we had, thousands of, if we had thousands of birds ready and marked, we could really get a good handle on that. But, but yeah, there is some northward migration and eventually, 
with enough time, you know, like this, well, let me say mid late January, if they can sustain north of here, they're probably never going to come back this year. Um, so yeah, so that, so some birds will come, and and what's really bizarre to actually throw more variability on all this. Think about you guys have heard the term Halloween mallards. Those mallards that show up here, it's like you drive around some of your wetlands in October. It's like oh, there's a few mallards, you know. Well, physiologically, they're not stressed at all. You know, um, they don't have to migrate. They could be sitting up in Canada in October. You know, heck, it's still mild up there relative to a mallard. But that's the fascinating thing about just the individual individual variability in movements is some birds move a lot, some move early, and then some don't move at all, and some kind of in the middle. So I don't and know that's if that probably, <laughs> that's probably some something that nature has created to so that we're not going to wipe them out in some capacity. You know, if, if all the West Point showed up at Harvey's at 7 o'clock on a Friday night, yeah. like, damn, we can, you know, we yeah. can, <laughs> only like 10% of us, go, or 1% yeah. of us, if you had the whole town, 1% of us get to eat here, you know? So, yeah, so yeah it's a way to, you know, there's all kinds of um, adaptive reasons for that, but yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. So, in a nutshell, they, they only migrate as far as they need to? Well, again, if that's generally our default explanation is like, look, those birds don't have to move yet. Again, when you drive around in October or late and we call them, we kind of dub them the Halloween mallards. Um, they probably didn't have to migrate, but they did. But typically the harsher the weather, the more snow, the greater proportion of birds you're going to have come south. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's still those individuals that for whatever reason, um, and then when you put radios on them, it's really crazy because, boy, you get some and they just, man, today they're here, tomorrow they're there, next week they're over here, and you get another female and she's just kind of like, yeah, you know, a little movement here and there, but pretty much hanging out. And you think of her as, as a less successful bird because she's not hopping around, like she doesn't have as much energy. But um, that was a big learning lesson for me working in California because those birds not only winter there, they breed there. And we had some individuals that hardly moved all winter. And we thought, man, we stressed them out with the radios. They're no good, blah, blah, blah. They're going to die. And boom, in the spring, they had a beautiful clutch of eggs. Mm. So it's like us. Some of us love to travel the world. Some of us love to sit on the recliner, you know. And and you hate to anthropomorphize everything. Deer the same way. You got some bucks that roam Mm -hmm. for for days and miles. Different personalities. Right. That's right. Yep. Yep. Do you you guys have any records of – Ducks that like jump flyways is that very common? Yeah, they can. Um, so most of the and this kind of leads, and into I'm the, sure that's a species thing, but this is kind of leads into the the banding and the harvest management. Typically, you know, we have the four flyways, and those are political units, but those were really biologically established through through band records. Now, so generally, like for mallards, we recognize a western population. And those are basically mallards west of the Rockies. Then we have a mid-continent population, which is basically the central Mississippi flyways. And then the eastern mallards are um, basically the Atlantic flyway, mm-hmm. if you will. So do birds cross flyways? Yes, they do. But for the most part, it, one, it depends on the species. And I'll give you another example. Pintails are very nomadic. So there's actually a, a cohort of pintails that nest in Alaska, and there's 
a population that nests in Alberta and the prairies. And most of those go like to Central Valley, California. Like California will winter like 60% of the continental pintail population. But some of those birds will come to the central Mississippi flyway. So, yeah, there is some. Wood ducks, another popular species, pretty much don't cross. You got a kind of a western wood duck population. You got a mid-continent. But within the Mississippi and Atlantic flyways, you'll have birds that'll mix, you know, okay. across flyways. But typically, large barriers like the Rocky Mountains, um, birds can fly over those. But generally, um, they they provide a population barrier, if you will, and it's part of that designates the Pacific Flyway, and that's like a separate management unit. So, okay, yeah, that's really interesting. So look, I I grew up in Alabama, and I didn't grow up a duck hunter. I was a deer hunter and a turkey hunter. When I got over here, I just fell in love with duck hunting. It, it's incredible. But one of the first things I noticed that if you're on a on a shoot and and a banded duck gets killed, it's a it could be a fist oh, yeah. fight. That's right. And, yeah. <laughs> so how did all this get started years ago? The banding and and are there as many ducks banded today as were banded fifteen or twenty years ago? You see guys with a lot of bands around their necks, and I mean, is that can these young people that are just getting into it can do they have any uh, chance of killing a, a banded duck themselves? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question, and there's so much information. Where do we start with that one? Um, <laughs> Well, talk about so, where yeah, banding Bobby, started. You stole my question. Yeah. I'm sorry, but so really, probably the first the first recorded band was actually on a Phoebe, small bird, and it was a piece of metal. And um, probably way back, the pharaohs and I mean thousands of years ago, there were probably people marking marking birds and and call out mark recapture, like they'd let it go and then the bird would come back and. John James Audubon started to mark birds. Frederick Lincoln, way back in the 1930s, that's where where banding had its origins here in in the United States. Um, But the banded Phoebe was probably the classic story. So um, a lot of stuff happened. You know, of course, we had the the Dust Bowl and and the market crash in the late 20s and the 30s, and wildlife management was just kind of beginning back in the the 30s and the 40s. And... um, after the Phoebe and, and other banding, I guess, anecdotal band observations, mark, mark recapture, banding programs really began. And so um, it wasn't until the 1950s when we started doing aerial surveys of the breeding ducks as we know them today, but banding has been around a long time. So historically, what people did, what biologists did is mark birds on the breeding grounds. Like, hey, this is where they're produced. Let's put bands on these things, let them go. And and then there's a couple, there's like three ways you can you can reevaluate a band. One is a hunter shoots it and reports it. Two, you can re-encounter it live somewhere again. Or three, you can find it dead and you've got a band number. So this stuff didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. And so uh, birds were banded on the on the have been banded on the breeding grounds for decades. And then about in the late 50s, in 1960, there was a huge push by the Fish and Wildlife Service to winter ban birds. And so back then, there was becoming the realization that wintering ground conditions were important, habitat types and things like that. And so um, birds were banded in, in the winter. And if I have this correct, I think between 1960 and 1990, uh, there were something like 3 million ducks banded in North America. And there was something like 
a million recoveries or something. So there was a huge emphasis decades ago to winter band birds. And uh, since then, since about 1990, nobody's really banded ducks collectively on the wintering grounds. They've continued to do it on the breeding grounds. And so um, banding, if there's one, and I kind of wanted to back up, I guess, we're really fortunate in the waterfowl world to have all kinds of tools in the toolbox. Like we've got the historical breeding population estimates that are flown in May. And we literally, um, those pilots fly enough transect surveys, they fly around the earth two times. That's how many. Wow. The earth, I think, is 25,000 miles around, I believe. So those pilots fly those transects to count ducks. That's what they use to help us figure out, hey, what are the limits? How many can we shoot? Things like that. But those only tell us so many things. Um, we can put radio transmitters on birds. That's another technique. And it's you can see where they go and when they go and where they move and habitat selection and things like that. Banding is another technique. Um, and if there was one technique that's probably – one of the most important, if somebody said, hey, economically, we can only afford one technique other than the breeding bird surveys, which are critical, um, banding would be, because banding can, there's three things we can do with, with that. You can, um, we can estimate interval and annual survival. We can um, estimate population abundance. And then Probably the third aspect that's a lot less known for ducks, more so for geese, is what we call site fidelity. Like if a mallard comes here, the mossy oak properties in year one, goes back to the breeding ground to survive, will it come back here in year two, in year three, in year four? And and the site fidelity is really cool. You know, a hunter shoots a band, they want to know the story, right? I mean, that's kind of like, oh, wow, one, it's a trophy. I'm not much of a trophy guy. I mean, I'd rather, up to the age of my life, if – if I'm hunting with people, I hope they shoot a band. I could care less. I mean, the data and the information is really cool. Uh, but for a lot of younger hunters, too, it's kind of a trophy, you know. But but those things in terms of survival rates and site fidelity, things like that can be really, really important. So those are – we really need to keep banding ducks. It's, you know, probably the – compared to aerial surveys, I guess, it's one of the least expensive tools in the toolbox, but it can be really, really effective. So, so I, yeah. I think it all, it's important to point out at this juncture in the conversation that if you kill a duck with a band, you get to keep the band, guys. All they oh, want yeah. you to do is call that number and report all the information, and the band is yours. I think a lot of people think that they have to send the band back, and they don't yeah. want to do that. So, so yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Can we can we talk about the psychology of the duck hunter a little bit? Yeah, please. Absolutely. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. There are. There are cohorts of hunters that all they want to do is brag, right? Man, I killed 300 ducks this year. I'll tell you where I shot them. There's another cohort of duck hunters that they don't want you to know they shot a duck, right? And so... That's Lanny. <laughs> I, re- I resemble that remark. I resemble that keep, remark. Keep, <laughs> keep, keep, keep your mouth shut and stay humble. Well, one That's of the... Right. And this is a critical piece of information here relative to bands. You can put a million bands. Well, for example, there have been, what are my records? 14 million birds banded, 14 million ducks banded from 1960 to this past August. Um, about four of those 14 million, about 6 million of those have been mallards. 
and we have about a million plus what we call recoveries, birds that were shot by hunters. So there's a lot of data out there. But despite all those millions of birds that have been banded and recovered, it's only a recovery if it gets reported. So you make a great point, Bob, because even a radio transmitter, sometimes a hunter shoots that and they're like, oh my God, I broke the law. We put some radios on birds down here last winter and I had a guy contact me in October from South Dakota and he's like, hey man, I just shot this hen mallard in South Dakota and this radio has your name on it. I'm like, all right, really? Cool. And he's like, am I okay? Am I going to get in trouble? I'm like, no, 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 no. So we, we had like a half hour conversation, you know, and the data are really, really important. So if you shoot any kind of marked animal, I mean, unless you're shooting an endangered species, don't, don't, I don't even want to know that. But if you're shooting ducks legally <laughs> with any kind of mark, please, please turn the band number in the radio tag number, the biologists, we, we, we love it because dead animals are provide data. Right. But the animal does not provide data if we don't know that it died. So even within the banding world, um, the reporting rate is really, really critical. That all, that all pattern um, um, segues into estimates of probability of survival. If we have no idea how many birds are shot but not reported, man, you're surviving. We really don't know. So anytime you shoot a marked animal, if you, you know, of course, done it legally and please turn it in, please call whoever, you know, send the band number into the Fish and Wildlife Service because the data, until we know, um, it's not very useful. So um, when you're, you're talking about how this banding got started, but Jack Miner, did he play a role in, in helping – here, the American Fish and Wildlife Service to understand banding because didn't oh, yeah. he get started kind of prior to all this? Oh yeah, yeah. And people still talk about the minor bands and all that. So yeah, he was. I forgot to bring him up, but you're right. Yeah, he was very influential. Um, Bobby, don't you have a minor I, band? I, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. uh, uh, yep. on the Tom Baby River killed yeah. him. I sure did. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no. Um, a lot of those pioneering efforts are were really important. Yeah. And to this day, everybody in the boat claims they killed that. That's, well, see, that's, my, that's my problem. I was always the youngest. I was the kid hunting with all my dad's best buddies, and they'd get fights over those bands. Oh, yeah. You know, I'd be like, I shot it, and it was like they didn't even hear me. So, but, but you I'm know, talking to y'all. You know, you know who you are. I, I, th- I find it just fascinating, Landley. Blanny, you can uh, attest this. We've talked about it several times, but you'll go to some some really. Uh, Serious duck camps with guys, and there'll be there'll be one guy that'll have a lanyard that's oh, yeah. just completely covered yeah. in a duck and goose band. One of my one of our population bio, I said, how many how many birds do we need to ban before you get a ban recovery? And he once told me, for every bird um, recovered, we have to ban about two hundred fifty six mallards. Wow! So whether that's really true, um, I don't know. But not to brag, I've I've been hunting ducks since I've been a kid, and I've I consider myself a good duck hunter. I have no idea how to hunt deer. So I trade ducks with Bronson when I get in the venison mood because I don't deer hunt. Um, but I'm a good duck hunter, and I've killed a lot, a lot of ducks. And I think I I may only have seven or eight bands maybe. And it's for all those ducks I've killed, you know, just random, random chance. Some people have a bunch and some, you know, some have killed. My dad has killed. He's 78. He's one of the best mallard hunters on the planet. He's got, you know, a few bands. So let me ask this to everybody, to uh, Lanny, you as well, Mike. Have, have any of y'all 
ever been in a blind or standing in the timber and actually see a band on a duck's leg when and, and like, oh my gosh, I have been, one time, once. Yeah. What about you, Lanny? Yes, I have, and actually ended up. Uh, it was a pair of greenheads that came in. Like I was, I was hunting with a guy I used to work at Moscow named Brad Childs. Saw the band, uh, shot one of the greenheads, went out there to get it. He shot the other greenhead, and they were both banded. I'll be. So, what about yeah, you, was Mike? A, that was a special morning. <laughs> have you ever seen a band fly? A fly? I have. Yeah, uh, I did have one question. Why? Why you give me the mic for a second? Okay, it, it's it's yeah, yeah. Let Mac ask some questions. Uh, yeah, and he's not I'll be, I'll Go ahead. You know, I got a lot of questions, but uh, so Doc, my question is, uh, we're, we're mostly talking about mallards here on the banding, uh, as far as the the quantity of ducks banded. Do you band? Uh, as many drakes as you do hens because i mean at least around here you know we we try not to shoot the hens so would that change your data by i I guess what i'm asking is do you you band as many hens as you do drakes or do you just ban drakes that's a really good question and i don't have the the sex difference numbers in my head but let me let me just kind of go over how this works so the preseason banding, that is generally after the breeding season in the prairies. And so what happens is um, males stay with male ducks stay with the females only up until you know late egg laying, early incubation, and then they leave. And so the males can actually leave and we'll, we, we kind of turn term those bachelor flocks. So they'll leave, they may move you know a mile away, they may move a hundred miles away depending on where they go to molt. And so then you have females that are still nesting. And then, you know, by late summer, you have birds that are either done nesting or lost their nest or got killed on the nest. Um, so there's there's kind of these differential cohorts of males and females that are somewhat available at different times. Um, but generally, once you get into, you know, right before migration, that late summer period, you do get quite a bit of mixing. I think we, we do ban more males. What that proportion the uh what that you know percent difference is i'm not sure um but but we do ban you know and and we always emphasize banning the females or putting radios on the females because we we look at them as the reproductive unit right and in ducks the females really make the decisions are really philopatric unlike songbird songbirds where the males attract a female usually it's the female that guides the male all winter long into the breeding ground so so banding the females is important. And then the other way females get banded is um, when we're studying nesting ecology, you can catch them on the nest and put a band on. But I can't tell you the difference between the males and the females. I mean, some of our banding folks could tell you that up in the north, but sorry. it's. Hmm. But but we do want to ban both. Yeah. So y'all are probably banding everything you catch. Oh, yeah. 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 And one of the Obviously, we know the benefits of banding. One of the challenges to banding, and and it's really unfortunate for species like scop and pintail, who I don't want to say they're in trouble, but, you know, pintail are just kind of, you know, mallards are up here like this, and the pintails are just, and we think that has a lot to do with what's going on in the breeding grounds, especially places like Alberta. Um, but banding could really help those species because we could get more interval survival rates rather than just annual survival rates. And scop are a great example. Scop, there's, 
there are issues going on with Scott that are still not really well known. Um, I, I don't want to say they're in trouble, but the populations aren't nearly what they used to be decades ago. The problem with scop is accessing them. So you have some that nest in Alaska, but then you have a bunch that nest in the boreal forest. And the boreal is just so hard to get to. It's it's hard to – the green-winged teal. Green-winged teal are plentiful. We shoot a lot of them, but we really don't know a lot about their nesting biology because they live in these remote places like in the boreal. So they're really tough to study. So most of the scop banding is done – um, north of here in the winter on Pool 19 near Keokuk, Iowa, on the Mississippi River. And so when you're out banding, what you'd really like to do is get sort of a kind of an equal geographic representation of that population. But for some birds like scop, the banding data aren't that great. It's not that people don't try and, and, and they do ban thousands of them on Keokuk, but it's um, once they go to the boreal, you just can't. It's like that's where we can have the most contact with them. And after that, you know, it's we don't have much more information. So it's kind of a challenge. So, yeah, Mac, did you have another question? <clears throat> I do. Uh, it's it's more in regards to the conservation side of things. I mean, with us being in Mississippi, we think of ducks as, as kind of passing through. I mean, it's not so like we're not in a state where they're living year round for the most part, except for a small population of of local ducks. So what are your thoughts on when you should put water on your in your fields, when you should take it off at the end of the season? Like what's, I guess, some good best practices on a conservation side here in the southeast uh, for such a migratory bird? That's that's tough. <clears throat> well, it's a really good question. Yeah. And, and let me let me talk about um, the habitat types first. So one of the one of the things we can relate to the most, some of our I don't know if it's my favorite or not, it depends, but bottom on hardwood forest. So no matter what, um, my first by default, what I tell landowners all the time is take care of the woods. And what I mean by that is that we have flooded before we've learned a lot about the integrity of our red oaks, like the willow oaks, water, cherry bark, and nut all oak, and pin oaks where I'm from. Before we understood kind of the physiology of those trees, we've been flooding these like GTRs, bringing the water up, leaving it on, taking it off. And the way those trees, those red oak forests evolved is, like I tell landowners, really our hydrology down here in the MAV in Mississippi is like a heartbeat. It might flood for a while, then it goes dry, it might come up. You know, some years might have been really dry, some might have been really wet. But Mississippi point- alluvial valley. Yeah. MAV. Southern Missouri from um, Southern Illinois. So, or, I'm sorry, Southern uh, Louisiana. So the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta, the Boot Hill of Missouri, um, and then down through through Louisiana. And so what we need to do is we've, we've shifted so many of these forests from Red Oak to Overcup. And you walk around somebody's woods, and, and I get this all the time. They're like, Doc, you know. Man, my dad, my granddaddy, we used to shoot ducks in here, blah, blah, blah. And you walk around, you're looking in through the water, and you see these big old acorns floating around. And I'm like, you probably don't have the red oak mass like they did back 30, 40, 50 years ago. And part of the problem with that is we bring water up too early, and then we kind of leave it stagnant, and then we pull it off. And so what I try to emphasize to people so you don't lose your red oaks is um, delay flooding your woods 
later, maybe, maybe even in December, or or change the timing of it in different years. And then the other thing on the back end, kind of use leaf out as, as the time to pull water, or even before that, typically March 1st. But I don't know how many people, especially in Arkansas with all the rice, they're like, man, if I don't get this rice drain water, I'll never have water for my woods. I'm like, okay, but you do that year after year after year, you know, you're shifting those red oaks. and So all and, the red and oaks. Mallards are, and wood ducks don't eat overcup oaks. They eat red oaks. So, so the uh, the overcup oaks are much more flood tolerant. Yes. And so the red oaks are dying off because yeah. people with good intentions are keeping the water on their bottomland hardwoods too long. The red oaks are dying back. The overcups are taking over. So they're either flooding them too early and or leaving the water too late. And as I tell the students, we've loved the resource to death. You know, yeah. sort of. I mean, I'm not, I'm not painting a bleak picture, but like right now, Arkansas Game and Fish, for example, they're going through like a massive um, restructuring, reforestation, or redoing all the plumbing over there and some of those GTRs because those forests for decades, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, that's the other analogy I use. If you got a weedy field with weeds up to your waist one day. And Bobby goes out there and disses it all down that afternoon. You come back the next day, it's a dirt field. You're like, holy cow. You know, but woods are a woods, right? Of course, the foresters would kill me for saying that. But trees are trees unless you know. And so, yeah, there's always been this forest here, but the types of trees that you're regenerating or recruiting aren't red oaks anymore because there's been so much water. So I know that's a long answer to your question, but Probably the first thing I would flood early is, is more the moist soil, the natural wetland stuff. Um, rice fields are great, but I probably would anymore because it seems like birds are coming down later and later, maybe delay the flooding of some of those. Um, and are, we, are we benefiting the birds by leaving water on these moist soil impoundments on into mar- – when would we pull that off? Oh, man, that yeah, that's a great, great point, and I agree 100%. The, the age-old question I get is, Doc, what do you think of me about dumping some corn out here, you know, February 1st to, to pattern the ducks? I'm like, Imprint. well, you can do that. That's fine. But you're really going to you're gonna create a legacy with birds, with good habitat. And then the other thing that we typically have done way too much um, through the decades is flood everything too deep. You know, like, but you got to think about it. if you're a WMA manager, a, a Fish and Wildlife Service refuge manager, the public expects water to be everywhere. You know, we pull up in the morning, we expect to be able to drive our 25 horse down a canal and go, you know, go where we want. Well, ducks like this much water, you know, they don't. So like four inches, five inches, six inches? One of Dr. Heath Hagee, you may know him, his PhD work here several years ago, he watched birds forage. They were doing some experiments with food depletion and things like that. In over three winters and watching thousands of birds, this wasn't just like a weekend foray. 90% of the birds that he watched fed in six inches of water or less. Teal, mallards, pintail. Um, so we typically, you know, over flood things and, and flood them too deeply. So with the dabbling ducks, we got to think if they, they've got to be able to tip over and, and, yeah. and, and feed. And like I tell people, if you, if you really go out and watch ducks, even during duck season, but they're not getting shot at that often. They love to walk around, like, you know, water that deep. They'll be sitting on logs. I mean, they love to be – they don't need two feet of water, you know. And so, so that would be shallow, better shallow for your water. trees anyway if it's a exactly. little more shallower. Yep, yep. 
So we've always managed for the 25 horse outboard, I guess, if you will, historically. And, um, you know, we use the, we use the, the water level of 18 inches or less, but, you know, birds even like it even shallower than that, you know. So, um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, well, and so these birds that are migrating back north, so leaving that water on a little bit longer, is that helping those birds? So here's an important thing. So what, as duck managers, we're always wanting to provide good habitat. Um, and one way to do that is to provide the vegetation that they like, you know, the the, the grasses, the millets, the sprangle top, the panic grasses, the smart weeds. Um, and to get those plants you have to time the drawdown of those wetlands at the right time. And down here at this latitude, really, if we flood or if we drain too early in the winter, you end up getting a lot of what we call cool season grasses and weeds. You really don't get the duck plants, so to speak. Um, so pulling water off, I think Toxie said last year, he pulls the water off in July maybe to get a good stand of grass. Yeah. So by all means – don't pull all your boards after duck season. Pull them, pull them down where you got you know a foot of water or less. And, you know have variable depths, but shallow water and leave it. That's where you really build a legacy, um, because then as winter transitions into to late winter and spring, um, you notice all the pairs out there, and typically you know the males have to feed, but most of the day that Drake's head is up, and that female's like this. She's down there rooting around for insects, bugs, snails. Because she's starting to put all that on, she needs the protein from the bugs to go into pre-basic molt, which is what they she nests in, that darker plumage. And in order to do that, she needs access to invertebrates and things like that. So as winter transitions to spring, if you're out here watching these birds, you know, the males feed, but man, he's pretty much kind of standing over her, almost like a sentry goose. I mean, they're not like that, but but similar, and she's just foraging like crazy. So if there's nowhere to forage, I got to go somewhere else. But on y'all's properties down here, every, any duck hunter in the Delta, I mean, I think you really build. They remember that. You know, if they survive, they'll remember that. And it's high quality food. I mean, yeah, corn is a great carbohydrate, but the, these natural wetlands that y'all manage, it's they got seeds and invertebrates. Yeah, so diversity wins. Very diverse. And yep. then you yep. know you got your flooded timber. You got to take care of to keep yep. from killing your trees. You got your moist soil. Yeah. And then you got your stuff you plant. And it, it's almost like you need to keep the management of that yeah. a, a little bit separate. So in an ideal world, kind of getting back to, you know, pull the water off the woods, maybe February. And if you can, in an ideal world, if it was developed where you could take all that water and run it into your moist soil environments. I know it doesn't always work that way, but you can leave those weed fields in areas that you don't have to farm the next year. Man, leave four to eight inches of water, you know, mud flat to a foot of water, you know, because then you got different depths for different birds and things like that. And that's where you really kind of build that legacy, I think. Oh, I, uh, I enjoyed the banding discussion. And I'm I also, I'm kind of glad we got a little bit off of that and talking about habitat and management and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you've been hitting on invertebrates mm -hmm. and uh, you don't, you don't seem to hear that as much. Uh, you know, everybody wants to plant something or, mm -hmm. you know, feed food. Uh, and we talk about cover and whatnot. And I want to ask about that later. But what are some things you can do or not do to increase the amount of invertebrates? Uh, you know, I've, I've heard of folks saying, you know, if you have a bunch of leaves in the in on the floor of the, you know, the water, 
that helps? I mean, is there anything else? Uh, yeah, no, that's a really good question. So let's go back to the woods for a second. You know, this kind of gets deep into the ecology, but we talk about like the bottom up processes, like what makes a, what makes an ecosystem healthy for everything else? You know, you got the, the mice and the rabbit uh, rats and then the rabbits and then the deer and the turkey, you go up the food chain, right? Well, in a bottom and hardwood system, the fact that all those trees lose their leaves everywhere, deciduous leaves, that creates all this decay material and adds to soil. And it, that's really the stuff that makes bottom and hardwoods really productive. And so when you get all that leaf litter on the ground, it starts to decompose, decompose. You've got all these, you know, there's insects are known as like shredders and decomposers. And there's three or four different classes of, and they all sort of operate together. Like one waits for the other. And so you keep breaking this material down. I know we're getting really deep in the ecology, but that's really what keeps these things functioning. And so um, the leaf litter in a bottomland hardwood system is really important. Out in the wetlands, um, some leaves, you know, like like smartweed leaves, some of those that are a little bit um, jagged on the edges and they're not real waxy, those can break down too a lot. Like if you ever see, um, like smartweed's a good example because those red leaves, it's almost like a, a leaf on a tree. They'll get real brittle, you know, mm. if they're not flooded. You can kind of crunch them up. Well, when that's down in the water that long, that's sort of the food and the cover for invert communities. So you, we don't, invertebrates in wetlands are really, they're kind of wonky. You can kind of predict what's going to be there and when, but boy, it's so different. And even the, I'm not an invertebrate ecologist, but I have a couple of friends that are, and they're like, man, just when you think you see these patterns, it's, you know, you, you get something else. So the bottom line is, we're not really going to carry a lot of ducks on the energy that invertebrates provide. But I always look at food for ducks as like our own food. Like if all we ate were baked potatoes, you know, we could, I don't know if one of us just ate baked potatoes the rest of our life. I don't know how long we'd live. Maybe we'd live to be 90. I don't know. But I think we're going to be a lot better off if we're eating salad and broccoli and, you know, so so the amino acids that are in those bugs, that's sort of the other component of the food that's really important. But at the end of the day, in terms of really feeding a lot of ducks, it's it's the grains, you know, the seeds. Okay. That that carries most of it. But but those bugs, you know, you don't want to dismiss them. They're they're not important. But really managing for them, typically they're a byproduct of the of the good habitat management that you provide. So gotcha. And then uh, you know, around here. Uh, you know, I grew up hunting in the Delta, and there's a lot of natural stuff going on. But around here, uh, folks like Toxie have had good results, like creating these little impoundments oh, yeah. and growing food. Um, is there anything that you see that, like, is there a is there anything you see that people commonly leave out of the equation when they're making these uh, little impoundments that they flood? Uh, I mean, are they leaving cover out? I mean, are they just putting food, you know, do you understand that question? And I, I've got kind of mixed reactions to that by default. um, Food is the ticket, you know, good food, shallow water, they can get to it. That is part of it. But I've seen, and I don't want to name agencies or names, no one around here that do a really good job of management, but they're so focused on, on the hot food, like millet 
and jap millet and chihuahua millet and panic grass is just a sea of brown where historically in some of those areas there was a little bit more ridge and swale and you had willow slashes a little bit of button bush one of the questions i get all the time like doc what do you think of coffee bean i'm like well if i have five thousand acres i like it if i have 25 acres i'm probably going to grow groceries you, you follow me mm-hmm. so Mm-hmm. There are places in the landscape, I think, and part of the problem is our own fault, the biologist's fault. We've learned so much about habitat management, more soil management. We've trained everybody else how to do it. And so now everybody's like food, food, food. And in some cases, we've lost some of the, what I call the, the natural biodiversity, like the willow slashes and the meandering sloughs and things like that. Um for every acre there's willows, somebody will say, well, that's less millet I can grow. But you know what? If you really watch mallards when they're undisturbed, they like those woolly, slashy. Um, I remember when when Lake George, a really good example in the Delta, after it got out of farming in the mid-90s and it just started to go natural, there were some big blocks of uh, coffee bean, but then there was food right next to it. And you'd walk in there in the morning and – the mallards and green wing teal that would get out of that coffee bean, they probably weren't eating it, but it was cover. It was hiding, you know, hiding cover for the teal from raptors. It was probably thermal wind cover, you know. So depending on the size of the habitat, I always tell, it's what I always tell my students. I get them so conditioned in class. Like, what would my answer be? They're like, it depends. (laughs) So it depends on how many acres you have, you know, what your hydrology is, things like that. So, there's really no substitute for food, especially if you have a small tract. Um, but man, leave some of those. If you have areas, I don't know how many times I've seen areas where where ducks just like to go. Don't mess with it. Even you know, you may go in there and try to cut out some trees to grow more food. I wouldn't do that if they go there. I mean, there are places on this landscape all over where you know what I'm talking about. So. I would say just be really careful about, you know, manipulating too much. But yeah, I was uh, I read an article several years ago, a guy in the in Mississippi uh, up around Clarksdale and Cleveland. Uh, you know, he's getting these properties that had been land formed. Yeah. And he actually is kind of turning around, you know, moving dirt around to where there's little ridges and things. Right, and yeah. and, uh, yeah. and it and it made a tremendous impact on. Yep. Uh, how many ducks were hanging out and, you know, wanting to land there yep. instead of. Natural wetlands aren't like this. Right. Natural wetlands are, you know, and even bottom of Howard Forest. That's yeah. why we have so much tree diversity is there's a lot of ridge and swell. So he was getting in there and building yep. these little S-shaped ridges yep. and yep. things like that. And yep. uh, it, it helped his program tremendously. Yep. 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 Pretty cool. What I call kind of those nasty different places, you know, I mean, it's just not this flat pool table. That's okay for rice, you know, but in natural wetlands, it's good to have a little bit of that elevational change, yeah. Do you have a lot of students that, that are just avid duck hunters that come in and, and want to learn all this from A to Z? Yeah, we're still fortunate at Mississippi State where we have, you know, we still have a pretty good hook and bullet crowd. Um Trying to think if I've ever had a grad student that had, if they didn't hunt, it was because they just didn't have much opportunity. Um, matter of fact, we just hired a new guy. I think he's going to be super smart, really a nice guy. But he grew up in Rhode Island. 
and he's like, he goes, man, I'd love to learn. I just had no, never had anybody show me, you know? So, um, we're still fortunate here that we, um, we have a lot of those people and, and that's usually what I got to do is like wean them off a bit of just shoot, shoot, shoot. You know, you need to understand the science of this stuff. And by the end of the waterfall class or the wetlands class, and that's, that's kind of interesting too. So I teach a waterfall ecology and a wetlands ecology and, in my wetlands class, one year was my student evaluation. Is like, man, Doc talks too much about ducks. I might have given like one lecture, hmm. but I'm like, I don't care who you are in wetlands. You need to understand 1986, the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, joint ventures. I don't care if it's a, the water bird or shoreboard, shorebird joint venture. A lot of that was born in 1986 because of ducks. Like it or not, you need to know that, you know. But the waterfowl class, we talk about that all day long. But the wetlands class anymore, I give them a little snapshot, but boy, they want to hear, they don't, you know. So it's even within those two classes, it's really different, you know. But places like Georgia, they have a great wildlife program, but so many of their students are from Atlanta. I mean, And they, they don't just, hunt. They don't hunt, mm-hmm. man. Well, yeah. And I, I, I've heard, uh, I think another guest mentioned that a lot of, these newer students getting into wildlife, biology, yep. all that, uh, they're increasingly non-hunters. Yeah. And everything, yep. you know, statistics and modeling and all that, it's wonderful. I mean, it can it can move us forward. Um, but as time goes on, some institutions are changing and just, you know, you got all these modelers and people doing this and that. It's all great. I mean, I have to do it myself and work with people who are much better at it than me. But I think as things change, our program almost becomes even more unique. Not that we don't we don't go in those directions too, but we're still grounded in applied research. Um, yeah. I love taking kids yeah. on field trips, going to York Woods. Going, we need to do that over here. Uh, bring them on a field trip. The, the coronavirus the last couple of years is really. Um, I take them to South Louisiana and they ride airboats at Rockefeller Refuge, you know, and they're like, man, it's. Every year of my evaluations, man, the docs field trips are awesome. You know, a lot of people don't do that anymore. <laughs> and so I think the more as time goes on, um, I think our program gets even better because we do do the practical stuff, you know. That's great. Um, and that's my opinion. You know? That is great. <laughs> so uh, what about – what about uh, have you got a favorite recipe or a way that you like to prepare and cook and eat ducks? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm um, – Usually, I, I love to cook duck, and and most of the comments that I get, somebody's beeping in. Some of the comments I get is like, "No way, this isn't duck or goose. This is this is fabulous," you know. And um, I don't do anything real particular. The one thing I will do, I either I either um, freeze them in water or vacuum seal them, or eat them fresh. So no matter what, when I pull them out of the freezer and thaw them. I'll usually, if they've been in there, you know, they're not freezer burn, but they've been in the freezer. Um, I'll put them in salt water for a day or two and just kind of bleed them out. Sometimes I'll put them in a marinade after that. Sometimes I don't. But depends. If we're, if we're grill, it depends. It depends. It so depends. If, we're, if, if, yeah. we're, if we're grilling duck, just like a steak. And this is no lie, especially the white fronts. You know, I'll we shoot some of those over there in Arkansas and I'll grill those on a Saturday during the football game. And when the girls are like, doc, no way this, this tastes like steak. I'm like, 
its white front of goose. Like, oh my God, this is so. You're going to shoot more of those? I'm like, I hope so. <laughs> you know? I hope so. so exactly you don't. Right. You don't want to overcook them, you know. And then either, either do a medium rare where they're still bleeding in the middle, and you got to tell people, look, it's not like chicken. You can eat this quasi raw, uh, medium rare, or you cook it so far down like a gumbo. It just you know you're pulling it apart, right? You know. But yeah, we do a lot of duck tacos, like at baseball and football games, all that. So anyway, Lanny, you got another question? Well, of course I do. <laughs> of course I do. I have uh, one all your experiences, story. I gotta. Go yeah, ahead. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, obviously, you you spent a lot of time uh, with with waterfowl across the country. Uh, if you had to pick one uh, public land uh, mecca, uh, where would it be? Ooh, that's a great question. Mm. You said North Missouri, and I had my island. I was just wondering. <laughs> Boy, he's thinking. You know, you can, you, I, I can smell wood burning from over here. <laughs> <laughs> One of the coolest. No, that's <laughs> and and, and uh, I don't know, man. I, you know, Missouri, it's been wonderful. Um, South Louisiana is wonderful. There's no place like the Sacramento Valley of California, especially when they used to burn rice fields. What's cool about California is there's still about 5 million birds that go there, but there's only like three to 400,000 acres of wetlands. I mean, you got to thank God for the rice fields, uh-huh. but that is an amazing place because it's so dense. You know, there's so many birds in a small area. The other really cool place um, I'd have to say is like Cheyenne Bottoms. It's right out in the middle of Kansas. And it's a big 40,000-acre prairie basin. And when it has water, shallow water, something like 90% of the northern hemisphere shorebirds will migrate through Cheyenne Bottom. It's a Ramsar wetland. So when I show the kids in class, I'm like, think there's anything cool going on in Kansas City? They're like, well, besides the Chiefs and the barbecue, you know, not really. And then you talk about Cheyenne Bottoms, you know, they're like, oh, wow. that That's one. And then, you know, like, Going back to California, probably Lower Klamath and Tule Lake. Some of those, I, I don't. Although I love the the woods and the bottom and hardwoods, I don't know. I've always been sort of this open kind of prairie. You know, I, there's something about that. It's just this vastness about it. I don't know, but anyway, there's so many wonderful places yeah. though. You know, I want to kill ducks in the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, cool. yeah, that, yeah. You know, I've seen yeah, photographs cool. over there on the West Coast and Oregon and Washington State, oh. and it looks like it's fantastic. And the limit is like seven miles. I know a guy in East Central Washington. He goes, "You can have Stuttgart, man." He goes, "There's so damn many mallards here. Yeah, dang mallards here." <laughs> anyway, uh, but hey. I have an anecdotal band story. If you want to hear that, please. Um, my dad, uh, brother. Go couple of guys, four or five of us were hunting in, in Oklahoma and it's no secret anymore. So I, I don't mind talking about it because everybody goes there now, but, um, along some of those reservoir, uh, some of the coves and the reservoirs, yeah. the Oklahoma department of wildlife and parks, they would fly millet on those mud flats in the summer. So this is like late nineties, maybe early two thousand. We were over there hunting and Flock of mallards come right into the decoys, and boom, I kill one. My dad and brother, we shot two or three. I go out, I pick it up, and it's banded. I'm like, oh, wow. So, you know, we're shooting ducks. 20, 30 minutes later, here comes another flock right in. Boom, I shot another one. I go out, and I'm like, man, this is banded too. So I shot two banded mallard drakes, like with a 25-minute span in the same little, little cove in Oklahoma. And one of them was banded in the Yukon. 
And one was banded at Jay Clark Salyer National Wildlife Refuge in North Dakota. I'm like, wow, that's cool. So that's when you rode in and got the, <laughs> yeah. cool. the band certificates and that. I'm like, that was really that's that's my that's the highlight of my banding. So <laughs> I, I was told that I needed to ask you about a project that you had uh, maybe as a grad student with some wood ducklings oh, yeah. and, and where one got eaten by what by <laughs> by a fish. <laughs> And somehow you, uh, uh, I was told that was a good story to get you to tell that. So, yeah, so I did my master's and PhD here at State, and we put little, they're like 1.6 gram radios on the back of the wood ducks. So we had the female with a radio, and then we'd take like three ducklings per brood. So the point is, is what's the survival of ducklings? And and we had a lot of, there's a lot of good estimates on, on band, survival of banded birds, but when you put the radios on, um, you can kind of look at where and when these ducklings die, and and then you can kind of figure out what ate them. And so one of the study areas was Noxaby, and the other one was at Aliceville Lake on the Tintom. And the first the first year I put 46 radios on, this is in the summer of 1996 at Noxaby Refuge, and 10 of those were eaten by great blue herons. And what's even more bizarre about that is – we didn't know what was going on at first. I mean, it was my first year. No one's ever really radio marked wood duck ducklings. You're in a swamp. Ain't no telling where they, they could be in a dang den of a tree, in a cottonmouth, in a fish. And and lo and behold, four years later, all of those things eat them. Well, anyway, at first, we're like, where in the heck, you know, did the radio just die or is the duckling really dead? Well, anyway, we start going around Bluff Lake in a boat, scanning with our telemetry gear, and you get a little ping, and it's like, oh, you go over there, sure enough, I don't know how many have been way back in the back of Bluff Lake, but there's that huge heron rookery. And they were like, mm-hmm. back then, there were 125 nests. So what's amazing is not just the fact that the herons ate the ducklings, but when you went into the rookery, um, every we went into three or four times because the, the these herons were picking them off, you know, every couple of days. So all of a sudden we get a disappearing radio in Lokefoma Lake. We're like, well, let's go over to Bluff Lake and check it out. Sure enough, well, of all these 125 heron nests, every one of these radios was at the base of one tree. So it's like, holy smokes. It's not just some random egret or heron. It was great egrets and great blue herons. It was like this one individual. You know, it's like you love Wendy's, you love Burger King, you know, and it's (laughs) – um, hey, you know what I mean? Uh, you, you love fish, you love steak. So not to say the other birds wouldn't eat them, but it's like this one individual bird figured out it either likes them or knows how to kill them. And what they were doing is on the north end of Lokefoma Lake, it's real open and kind of shallow between there and Doyle Arm. I know I'm talking specifics, but there's a lot of quail and stuff in that grass up in there and all that. Well, those herons would wade on that open shoreline. And boom, they'd hit them, I guess. And I never saw one kill one, but it would take them up to the to the nest and feed their young, and then the young were regurgitating their radios back into the water. So it was like, holy smokes. And the Cajun, you know, my Cajun friends are like, ah, I told you them dang herons always ate them wood duck. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, but we're putting numbers around it now, you know. That's so, crazy. But, I, I know cottonmouths, alligators, gar, and the other big predator is a red shoulder hawk. So we would yeah. – they would swoop down, pick off a duckling, and and we knew that because then you start walking through the bottom of the hardwoods. They nest up in trees in the hardwoods. Yeah. And you get a ping, you look up, and there's this red shoulder, you know. They're like, I'll be damned. Everything eats these dang things. Yeah. You know? I know a guy that swears up and down, older guy, 
He flushed a covey of quail, and a heron just happened to be flying over and ate one of them in the air. And I, I mean, that sounds so hard. That sounds so hard to believe. But now that you've said that, look, I'm maybe not, maybe I'm not shocked at anything anymore. I mean. <laughs> You know, it, until it's almost like cameras anymore, sort of rewriting what we think about predators. And the great one of the great stories oh, yeah. came from tall timbers where quail nests were being depredated. They actually got a doe deer in the camera, you know, using her hooves to mash a quail egg and lapping up the inside of the quail egg. Mm. Without a camera, we'd mm. be like, oh, that was a skunk or a raccoon or ground squirrel or cat or whatever, you know, so. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this has been fascinating. I, D- <laughs> Dudley is anxious. He's got ballroom dancing lessons at three o'clock. He's got to leave and run to. So, <laughs> no. so but the rest Talking of the us, all next guys, yeah, the rest of us <laughs> want to hang around. This has really been interesting. We'd love to get you back over here again sure. at some point because oh, yeah. we love ducks as much as anything. I'm happy to. I'm happy to come over. You know, whatever you guys want. Yeah. And uh, well, yeah. we've learned a lot, Dudley. What have you learned today? Um, I've learned that Toxie missed out hey, missed on a out. really good podcast. Yeah, M- Mac, what have you learned? Yeah, I can't believe he's not tuning into this one. Mm. COVID. I was going to say, that's why your staff in here, they heard I was coming and they're like, <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> I, I learned a lot about ducks. Hey, hey Doc, can, can you make sure they're doing something around there? Please, please. Man, there's two empty cases of beer and a half a whiskey bottle going. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I, I, I learned yeah, that I invertebrates are wonky. Yeah, yeah, they are wonky. And yeah. I don't they know why wonky. I'm so fascinated with them. I'm an acorn guy, but. Well, look, Doc, we appreciate you being here for hey, I, sure. I appreciate you having and, me. And, uh, and we'll do this again. We, we've we got a lot of questions about ducks we'd love to talk about. A lot habitat more to learn. And, That's the great thing about it. Yeah, so so thank you so much for being here. I'm going to say let's not do an Ask Dudley. You're mine somewhere else already, I can tell. Matt, we've had a great show. Is there anything anybody we need to mention? Lanny, you got anything you want to mention before we close out? No, no, just uh, everybody get out there and enjoy the rest of the hunting season because it's going to be gone before you know it. Yep. Yeah, sure. And y'all be safe. This Omicron thing is running running wild, but uh, y'all y'all be safe out there. And and uh, and we'll be back next week. And uh, why don't you uh, say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. <laughs> get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.